Well, we're back. It's been a long time, but it is with great pleasure that I can say, welcome back to the Inking Out Loud podcast. We're returning with a long-awaited continuation of Josiah Bancroft's Books of Babel with the first half of The Hod King. I am, as always, your host, Drew McCaffrey, and back at it with me is Lauren McCaffrey. Hey, guys. Before we head into the episode itself, I want to make a quick announcement about our Patreon. I had it on pause for the majority of this year as we were on hiatus, but as of the release of this episode, the site is up and running once again. We've got a new tier system, new perks, and of course, support for us there helps keep the lights on, so I encourage everyone to take a look and consider subscribing. But now, it's finally time for the Hod King. We pick up with Thomas Sunlin, finally in Pelphia, but doing the bidding of the Sphinx instead of the bidding of his heart. Part 1 bounces back and forth between Senlin in the current time and the last hours of the crew with the Sphinx, where Senlin is forbidden from contacting Maria or her new husband, and directed instead to investigate the Hod gladiators in Pelphia. He spends his days in that ringdom going back and forth from his hotel room to the Colosseum, ignoring everything else, at least on the surface. In fact, he's been ordering newspaper clippings, trying to piece together Maria's story. He also sent a letter to Will, her new Duke husband, with a fake business proposal. Finally overcome with agitation, Semlin heads out into Pelphia, seeking a play that supposedly tells the true story of Maria's arrival at the tower and marriage to the Duke. He watches for a while, but ends up leaving in disgust, unable to stomach the lies and the way he's portrayed in the play. On the way back to his hotel, however, he finds a Hod being accosted by two Pelphians. Before they can kill the man, Semlin stops them. And the Hod murders both before fleeing. Semlin panics, heads back to the hotel, and makes a report. He waits, nervous, until a wakeman and Pelphian guards, including General Eigengrau, Will's right-hand man, arrive. They tear apart Senlin's room and are ready to arrest him when a letter arrives from the Duke, inviting him to the Coterie Club during the Hod bouts the next day. The guards leave Senlin B, and he heads to meet the Duke. After some light stepping, Will, or Senlin convinces Will to consider the fake business deal, selling stakes in Maria's celebrity persona as the Mermaid all up and down the tower. Will invites Senlin to a party later that night to meet Maria and convince her as well. Afraid to be recognized and set off Maria, Senlin gets a hideous costume and mask before heading off to the party. He is quickly introduced to Maria and given the chance to ride on a sort of historical roller coaster for a private opportunity to convince her of his business plan. Once they're on board and away from the crowd, however, Maria reveals that she recognized him from the start. Senlin doesn't have much time, so he puts his most basic cards on the table. She can stay if she's happy. She replies and says that it's no longer about what she wants, that other hearts are at stake. She chooses to stay and tells Senlin to go home. Once back in front of the crowd, she rejects his business plan and embarrasses his alter ego before the peers of Pelphia. He heads back to his hotel and then sends a private message to Edith. The next day, Senlin hatches a new plan, now hoping to rescue John Taru from his slavery in the Colosseum. Before he can truly get underway, however, an unwelcome figure from his past rears her head. Nancy, the woman from whom Senlin's pirate crew stole back at the start of Book 2, is now a dancer girl in Pelphia. She reveals his true identity in front of Will, and despite an attempt to flee and alert the Sphinx, Senlin is captured and his mechanical moth is taken out by the birds in the Colosseum. He's confronted by Will, who reveals that Senlin has a daughter and Maria is essentially trapped with him, 
and then is made a hod and cast out into the black trail with a contraption over his head and John as his fellow exile. John is shot during a scuffle at the gate, and the two of them are forced to seek out the hod zealots. Senlin gets his helmet removed and John gets treatment, but Finn Gall shows up just when things are beginning to settle down. Meanwhile, Voletta is heading to Pelfia with Iron, Edith, and the State of Art. After a period of training, they arrive and are paraded through town to meet the king. Voletta and Iron are given a noble family to house with and begin their public socializing right away, but Voletta causes multiple scenes, ultimately ending up on the prince's balcony in her nightgown during a nighttime adventure. She does attract the prince's eye, however, and she and her new companion Xenia are given invitations to his cotillion the next night. There, Voletta again makes a scene, but the prince deflects it and makes her the star before Iron nearly attacks him. Voletta is given another invitation, this time to the prince's private suite the next night during one of Mario's performances. Voletta, convinced that she can persuade Mario to leave, eagerly accepts. She and Xenia head to the show and have a brief encounter with the prince and his friend, who is hot for Xenia, and the prince serves them drinks. He then offers Voletta a private token to get her backstage and meet Maria during the intermission. She hurries out, but is found unconscious only moments later. Iron rushes to find her, and there we ended. What's that look? It is reported by an usher that she is found unconscious. Yes. Yeah. So. Hmm. Well, we got to get back in the swing of things here. Uh, we usually start off talking about writing style. I thought this started off much better. Uh, this book is super polished. Yeah. Um, he he definitely leveled up here. I think his prose is extraordinarily smooth. Yes. Uh, he does lean a little bit into... Uh, setting descriptions maybe a little more than I love. What are you thinking of? Just a lot of the descriptions of Pelfia. Um, I think he got a little repetitive in describing the white buildings and the roads as canyons and things like that, um, especially from Valletta's point of view. I guess I didn't mind it because we've waited so long to get here. And we've heard so many legends about it already. Mm-hmm. That I was kind of welcoming it. And then there are these odd little details like the city gets washed often. And it's like, what was it? Ethanol dripping from the skies? Yep, ethanol. Mm-hmm. Like the rain. It, it basically has like solvent rain in order to clean the city. Because it gets so dirty because everybody litters so much. I mean, I guess... I guess that's... An interesting way to maintain your city. <laughs> interesting uh, engineering there. Yeah. Uh, yeah, and so even despite you know when I feel like maybe he leans a bit too much into redundant descriptions, overall I thought the prose was, as I said, very smooth. This is probably a result of this being the first book uh, traditionally published. Do you he, know who the likely, publisher was? I believe it was Orbit uh, first. Or no, no. Um, oh, dang it. I think Orbit picked up the first two books and then Hod King and Fall of Babel were published by Hatchet. 
in the UK. Hmm. I know there were two different publishers who ended up having their their kind of fingers in the pie, so to speak. Well, I just I just want to give credit to the yeah the help that he got. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I'm not saying he was a bad writer before. I'm just saying no, he, he leveled all. up, mm-hmm. like you said. Exactly. Uh, this is the strongest opening act of a book I've read in a long time. Uh, like I, I was gripped. I definitely didn't feel this way in either of the other two openings. Same. I enjoyed the previous two books openings, but not to this extent. Like I read basically the first 200 pages of this book late, late at night. Like I was having trouble reading or or sleeping. And and so I, you know, opened my phone up and, and that didn't help and thought like, Oh, I'll I'll read myself to sleep. And, (laughs) and then it was like three 30 in the morning and I'm 200 pages in. And I was like, Whoa, I'm, I didn't fall asleep until after I finished the first black trail, um, with, you with John and, and meeting Finn Gall. And then I started the next chapter. Um, and so it was Valletta's point of view. And I was like, okay, I can like, things are toning back down again. I can go to sleep now, <laughs> but Bancroft got me with this one. It's so good. Um, I definitely enjoyed it a lot Yeah, as well. And, and I think I did it all in one go. Yeah, you were doing it on audio, and I had a hockey game down in Denver, and when I called you on the way back, you were through part one, basically. Oh, you're right. I did separate it out into two days. I think the next day by lunch, I was yeah finished. Yeah. But well, accidentally, a little bit more than finished. And it, it, it was painful for me to stop. It hurt. Yeah, like I, I did not... I mean, we'll get into this a little later on um, when we're talking about, you know, the characters and the story a little more rather than just the writing style. But uh, where we ended here, I was like, "Ooh, <laughs> here we go. Finally, I have ideas about where this is going <laughs> and what has happened here. Yeah, but, I'm, I'm really curious, actually. Uh, yeah. And so writing style wise, though, um, just incredible pacing good economy of words like you know i i had some some tidbits and criticisms in the first couple of books but i i actually had no notes written down here where i was annoyed or pull out pulled out of the story or anything like that only one thing pulled me out what was that we'll get to it in a character oh oh okay gotcha it's just it's a stereotype that bugged me Mm, it it was okay. him falling into a stereotype that that irritated me just the slightest bit. Okay, I mean uh, stereotypes and and tropes and things like that could fall under writing style, but if you want to save it for later, we can. Uh, but like honestly, I I really maybe this is just me being kind of out of practice, but I don't have a whole lot to talk about in terms of writing style on this, other than saying. I slipped right into the story and I got pulled along. Yeah. And I, I liked that we still started with scenes at the Sphinx's place. Yeah. Okay. So this is a good style point though. In the structure of the story, we bounce around a little bit, um, especially very early on. 
where we're going back and forth from that last night, those last few hours yeah, to Semlin in the present. And it takes a little bit to catch up in the timeline. There's a, a fairly extensive set of scenes going from Thomas talking to the Sphinx, discovering that the Sphinx is a woman. I had totally forgotten that it was only Voletta who knew that. She allowed it, which was interesting because it doesn't seem like she did with Edith. Yeah. Because uh, Edith still seems... She's got a very different relationship with the Sphinx. That's what I meant. She's yeah. been strong-armed yeah. like, a little more. Exactly. There's some distance. Uh, no whereas... pun intended. Jeez, <laughs> Drew. There's some distance between her and... Precisely, yeah. And the Sphinx. And whereas she's let Thomas and Valletta in. Right. Does Eren... I don't... Now I don't even remember. No, I don't think she knows. She doesn't either. But she's she's also not going to push. She seems to more... She's, she's fairly with, passive yeah, as a character. Yeah, she is. She is. Except in, you know, fight scenes. Except fighting. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but, but yeah so we have this this kind of bouncing back and forth and again like the first two books we have epigraphs this time it's uh, uh, the newspaper writer yeah mostly from the newspaper Oren Robinson and then <laughs> some <laughs> others that are from like a book of manners so at first I thought it was him making fun of Pelthia and then I was like, oh no, he's he's serious. He's taking himself seriously. Yeah. But I can't. Yeah. Which was kind of fun. It was it was well, light it was, for us. Especially when we get to see firsthand uh, <laughs> with Voletta the way he writes about her in the newspaper and how he twists reality into you know something the Pelfia community at large, especially the nobility, could be comfortable with. But I also thought that sometimes he would be outspoken and I'd be like, oh, he's gonna get he's gonna get his head cut off by one of these noble families. Uh, but he's such a brown noser. Like he's he, it really seems to me that he's perfected this this speak art of towing of, the line. Or yeah. speaking out of both sides of his mouth. Mm-hmm. Like he Quite the politician then, huh? He's trying to make himself a power. He is, you know, he's using his unique position as a, a mouthpiece for Pelfia to influence opinion. But he also knows that he is nothing without the nobility supporting him. And so he has to be really careful about how he insults or you know, praises or like how he tries to maneuver noble opinion in the ringdom. So it, it, it's a really clever use of epigraphs. I, in general, I think Bancroft has done a really good job across two and a half books of varying the, the styles of, of the epigraphs. So I will say I wasn't bored even if these epigraphs aren't necessarily speaking directly to what's going on every time. Oh no, I wasn't bored I, at I all. I was still entertained. Yeah, they're great. 
they were a good view into the society. Right. And like all of the epigraphs so far to one degree or another, there are layers to them. There's misdirection where you can read them on a surface level and get one opinion. But as the story unfolds and you understand more about the tower or the specific ringdom, you understand how unreliable the writer of these epigraphs is. Okay. Speaking of that, what did you think of us meeting one of the actual writers of Oh yeah, that's the true. Uh, guide, every man's guide. Uh, I don't fully believe him. That you think he's lying. I I don't think he's as blameless as he tries to make himself out to be. Oh, like I he mean, tried to say, oh, they edited me, and and it was those other idiots who who made it all dumb and fake. I did, I wrote the truth, and 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 I got you know censored or. Didn't he also say he wrote it without being there? Hmm. I don't remember. Like he wrote it before he arrived or something. I don't know. Oh, I I didn't get that from it. But I don't know. But either way, I I I don't think that he was uh he was truthful there. So this is something, maybe a bridge from style to character. Reading through this it reminded me of the first couple episodes where I was talking about how Bancroft seemed to be doing this thing where he introduces a character and makes you think, oh, this is going to be a companion and then abandons them and moves on. And, and I think I even said on that episode or, or the second episode where I was like, I don't expect we'll see Adam again or something like that. And... <laughs> And now, halfway through the third book, it is hilarious how much he's recycling the early characters. We got Finn Gall showing up. We got Nancy showing up. We got John Taru again. You know. Well, we knew we would see I, him again. Yeah, I I did know we would see John again. Um, I think I said that on the first episode. But, but really, he is he's bringing everybody back into the fold, uh, and I and I enjoy it. I like it. It's fun. Yeah. Uh, again, it adds layers. It adds really cool potential complications to things. Uh, like Finn Gall. I going through this, I was actually wondering what was going on with him because I couldn't remember. Like, was he made a hot at the end of the first book? I legitimately couldn't remember what happened to him, other than them escaping from. New Babel. Do you remember? He was punished. I don't remember what the punishment was. He was uh, well, separated from his family, and I don't... Probably made a hod since he shows up on the Black Trail. But... He seems pretty perky for, you know, having the worst. Oh, but I'm sure he's, you know, he's in with the Zealots, and he's doing his normal manipulation thing. Yeah. yeah. He, he would. He would. I don't He's think he can a, a let that go. a pretty ripe um, circumstance for that. Yeah, so we're, we're left at a, boy, potentially explosive part of the book. And I'm very excited to read on. But let's move into characters. Explosive, you say. Sorry. 
everything's potentially explosive. I was going to say there were a lot of layers though, this to this first half of the book, like having all these characters brought back, Mm -hmm. meeting somebody from the Everman's Guide. Um, Then we have the book that he gets from the Hod that he saves. Oh, the the like fossils and trilobites and yeah, and then we have this weird meeting with the commissioner where he sounds like he's talking in code about yep. the book. Yeah, like he's trying to get Senlin to give him the code so they can be like, yeah, yeah. There, there's definitely something going on there. And then we have the university where it was written, and we have them making fun of the university. Yep. What is this university? Why is what is going on here? Like this is this is a deeper layer of what what the what? Uh yeah, and and even things like we just in passing get the word that oh um this ringdom agreed to give their painting to the Sphinx. We're heading out early. And I'm like Okay. I'm like what? what? You know, no way. It, it, there's no way it's that easy that they're just going to give up the painting after all the trouble Commissioner Pound went to to try to get the painting from Ogier in the first book, you know. And then we have um, agents of the Sphinx that we're introduced to. We know that she's not in control of all of them. Mm-hmm. And we have one agent of the Sphinx acting very oddly in multiple scenes. In which one? Which which agent? Uh, what's her name? Uh, George. Georgina or whatever. Yeah. She has a hollow chest. Yeah, like her whole torso is a machine. Yeah. Um honestly the one that I thought was acting very oddly was the red hand. Red hand's acting weird. I but don't know what's up he, with he him. He was super polite and deferential to Voletta. What did like, did she whip him into shape or something? Like what what or, yeah. What is he going to What is he thinking? That's I, a that's a gun on the mantle if I've ever seen one. <laughs> you know. That's what I mean. Like, yeah. There's a lot going on. Yeah, and I feel like I'm still missing. And even to, and this is really getting into character, even down into, like, personal conflicts. Yes. Like with Iron and Anna. Uh, okay. So, I automatically was like, who is she? What is she doing? This is this is a realm of wealth and privilege and debauchery and it's it's like Vegas taken to the extremes with no no government governing. Mm. It just like it's so it's so excess and everybody just plays a game. I don't know. It And then she she comes off as sincere and helpful. And I was like, who are you? Whose game are you playing? Who are you trying to manipulate? What are you doing? Yeah, I can understand that. I personally didn't have that reaction to her. Like it crossed my mind. Uh not when she made the move on Iron. But in the final chapter, it kind of crossed my mind of like, 
it's weird that she would be what she seems. How do I put this? Pelthia is given to us as a city of, you know, like it is what it seems to be. And, and then Will is not. Well, it's not just Will. And, and so when, but Anne is. She's so contrary. Yeah, she's set aside as a contrast to the rest of Pelthia. But thematically, she shouldn't be what she seems because so much of Pelthia is what it seems. Does that make sense? Yeah, and she's the one who tells us. She's like, the more random something seems, the more planned it is. She's like, you you thought that he picked a girl at random, but they paid for the privilege of yep. hosting. Yep. Why yeah. is she offering this kind of advice? Why is she helping our characters out? What what are her goals? Yeah. I, I I do think she is ultimately duplicitous. I didn't pick up on that as early as you did, or I didn't have that feeling as early as you did, because you weren't you weren't even close to finished when you texted me and you're like, I don't trust her. Uh, whereas for me it was only in that last chapter that I started getting that like, hmm, I don't, I don't trust this kind of feeling. Oh, it was, it was when she offered advice, helpful advice in the, mm-hmm. when we meet her that I was like, who are you? In, and in, uh, in hindsight, there's that scene with her where she just goes off on revealing herself and being vulnerable and then has this like, oh, I'm a fool. I shouldn't have said that tell me something vulnerable about yourself so I won't feel like a fool. Like that's really manipulative. It is. But I think after she makes an advance on Yuren, I kind of forgave her because I don't think she has much practice in the realm of flirting. I think she thinks that it's maybe looks different than it actually is. And she's mm. trying to flirt, and it doesn't work because Irene is not the typical. That and, is possible. And again, she has no practice. Mm-hmm. I, don't know. I would guess that she has no practice. Yeah. Uh, so I forgive her for that, but <laughs> it it is interesting to me. Speaking of Irene, how so much of her arc in the last book was her being. Old, slow. Oh, that was rough. A step behind. And there wasn't a whole lot of that in this book. This book, it was more like, what is my purpose? I feel lost. Lost. I feel left out. I feel like I'm aimless. And I'm uncomfortable and I can't get comfortable. Yeah. Like I, I said in both of the Arm of the Sphinx episodes that I thought they were death flags popping up all around iron oh uh no longer i see i i can't say no longer because it's not like arm of the sphinx didn't happen but maybe his editor convinced him to change (laughs) things boy that would be something (laughs) i'd love to have a you know be a fly on the wall for that conversation oh no 
I, I think I still see her maybe sacrificing herself for Voletta. I mean, the potential is certainly there with, with uh, Prince Francis. You know. He's, he's for sure a scumbag. He's, he's got nefarious intentions. Yeah, I was trying to... I meant to go back and try and find that scene uh, that we get from him. Oh, um, at the beginning of the cotillion, when he's like thinking about how all the girls are boring. Previous book. From the prince? Yeah. That was from his perspective? Okay, so I wasn't sure about that. Um, when we got his backstory about how he keeps being sent out, uh, and then, and then there was a story of him, like, taking advantage of the girl and she throws herself off. Mm-hmm. It, it jogged my memory and I was like, was that him? But I, I couldn't remember if it was actually named or if it was just some nobleman from Pelphia. He's named. And he, he is named. And he's okay. talking about his stupid research trip or whatever. Okay. Okay. Yeah, this is what happens when we're, you know, we've we've been months since we read the last well, book. I wanted to reread <laughs> it because, especially because it was from his perspective. One of the scenes was, yeah. No, no, the previous book scene. Yeah, yeah, I know. That's what I'm talking about. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, that, that's why I wanted to... I don't remember, I couldn't remember how evil he was in that. Like, it was, it was this just like casual, thoughtless evil. Like, he wasn't malicious. Yeah, he wasn't cruel or malicious or sadistic or anything like that. It was just a, like, of course this is how things go. I get what I want and I want this right now. And, and yeah. I mean, how much of that perspective is from his? So there's a little bit in him, obviously not to the same extent, because again, I don't think there's that level of like sadism or cruelty, but for those who have read the acts of Cain, I think there's a little bit of Baron in him. That, that casual, hedonism we'll have to revisit this yeah uh but while we're talking about uh the prince here i think he roofied valetta like he prepared the drinks and then he peeled her off from the rest of the group Irin says something about him drinking from a a different well, glass I, or whatever. Well, he poured four glasses. I think he specifically spiked her drink. And so, and when she left and was immediately like a, you know, a steward showed up and was like, oh, she's unconscious. I was like, oh yeah, she got roofied. That was my direct impression. Uh, well, uh, I mean, I can, I can say from experience that it doesn't take very long. <sighs> yeah. Boy, that was... Not a fun night. Drew Drew saved me. A bartender roofied me. At a concert. And I uh, disappeared. Yeah, it was like before the main band went on, we were at the bar. Lauren was watching the Cubs. Uh, The Cubs were in the World Series at the time, I think, or in the playoffs. And there was an older couple from Chicago 
who were watching the game and Lauren made friends with them. And I was there with, you know, uh, Pat, who's been on the show a few times, of course, and, and used to do our sound engineering. But uh, Pat and I went up into the crowd and and I told Lauren, he's like, you know, find us. Uh, the main band's coming on in a little bit. And we had bought a round of beers and one of them for Lauren was sitting there, but she was talking to the couple and... I didn't think it was my beer. I thought it was somebody, your beer or Pat's beer. And and so we both had our backs point, to it. Yeah, at some point, the bartender must have slipped something in, and, and we, we assume it was the bartender because there was a bartender at this particular concert venue who shortly after was fired, and and a story came out that a lot of people got roofied uh, by him. And they had a history at another bar. Yeah, we found um, out. But anyway, it was like the main band came on, and Lauren didn't show up in the crowd and I'm, you know, I'm looking around, looking around, they play a song. I'm looking around, no sign of her. And around song three, I was like, okay, you know, I got to go find Lauren. And I made circuits of the venue for the entire concert. It's not a small For the whole set. It's a decent size. Could not find her anywhere. And I was completely panicking. And it wasn't until after the show ended, everybody's filing out that I, I found a, a female staff member and I was like, can you look in the women's bathroom? I can't find, I think, I, I don't even know if we were engaged by that point. We weren't no, engaged. No. Yeah. And um, I was like, I can't find my girlfriend. And she went in and found Lauren passed out in a stall. And, you know, and, and we, we got her out and got her back home and everything. But it was like, you had one beer. And I've never seen you in that kind of, like, you couldn't walk. You were pale, clammy, shaking, like, totally out of it. It was, that was one of the scariest nights of my life. And I wasn't the one who got roofied. I have perfect memory of the drinks that we had. Yeah, we we had, oh, maybe you had two beers. We had a... We had a beer before we got to the venue. Yeah, we had a, a parking lot beer. And then... And no, then, no, we went to the bar. We went to the Falling Rock before that? Yeah. That show? Oh. Yep. See, I have a really good memory up until that point. Are you sure? Before the Trivium concert? We oh, went yeah. to Falling Rock? Yep, yep, yep. Because I think it was because I wanted to watch the series. The Cubs game? Yeah. Hmm. That would make sense. Okay. This was um, 2015, so Back to the Future had said that the Cubs would win the series that year, and they were in the series, so I was excited. Yeah, yeah. Um, Sorry. Anyways, I'm. But yeah, like this is. It it was very. It took like, mm, I want to say ten minutes. Probably. Probably ten minutes, before. Like from, I remember very clearly to nothing. And then like flashes. Yeah. Super scary. So he could have roofied her is, is our point. Yeah. Yeah. And this is like why it was so hard for me to stop reading right there. I was like, oh my gosh, what the heck? You know. I mean, I actually know what happened, but... Yeah, because you kept reading. (laughs) On accident. It was an accident. (laughs) It's also a lot harder when it's just, like, audio and you're doing something else and you're just like, la, 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 la. Oh, oops. Yeah. 
because you asked me like six different times where where we're ending and i told you and i was like here right here this happens in the chapter right here like (laughs) (laughs) that's very engaged okay i was waxing i was waxing bottles at work yeah and they're very pretty i'll post a picture maybe (laughs) (laughs) yeah so uh so that's the the creepy friggin prince yeah. Uh, well, let's talk about Valletta. So this is actually an interesting thing. Yesterday we were at the liquor store looking for potential thematically appropriate beers. <laughs> and there was a, a beer that I saw, and I'm trying to remember exactly what the name was. It was something like Wild Child. Yes, yes. Um, yeah. And I commented on it, and you were like, she's not a child. That was your first reaction. And, and I think I said something like, well, I mean, she was a wild child. And then I thought about it a little more and I said, but she's still childish. She is. She is. But I think it's... She's very impulsive. She doesn't think about things. She reacts in a childish way. But it's intentional. I don't think it is. Yes, it is. Yes, it is. Here. Mm, okay. So... She's been through a lot of trauma, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. She, in that trauma, has had to decide who she is and who she wants to be and whether she's going to let things affect her. See, I, I have to disagree here because she she has this scene with Iron after she goes out leaping across the roofs and she comes back and Iron confronts her and she's like, where were you last night? And she points out the muddy footprints leading to her side of the bed and, and we're in Valletta's head and we see she desperately wants to not mess up like this, but she can't stop herself. She wants their approval. She wants Iron's approval. She wants to behave, but she can't. She's got ADHD. (laughs) Sorry. Sorry. Not just that. It's, She's a young woman. She's not a child. She's I, a young I woman. I think she has PTSD. It's not a voluntary thing. It's a... You Neither know, her, is ADHD. Her, her coping mechanism. But you just said there was a deliberate choice on her part to act this way. I don't think it is at all. No, I say it's a deliberate choice. She has decided who she is. She is not letting the trauma dictate how she... No, but she is, by acting this way, she is letting the trauma dictate it. This is her coping mechanism. I think letting the trauma dictate it would mean her being a shell of herself. And not being who she was before. This is a tough thing to say, though, because no matter how she reacts to it, you could say, oh, well, that's the trauma. Okay, I guess I I see her also as more advanced when you especially when you compare her with xenia oh my goodness so she is one who deliberately is acting like a child she is deliberately acting like a child but i think that oh she's awful i think that xenia uh has some also has some severe trauma in her past i don't understand because of what Anne says where she's like she was this precocious intelligent yeah Always then, going after puzzles and and now searching for answers. She is this like puff. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. 
I don't think it's necessarily trauma as much as it's she buckled under social pressure. She panicked when she got to a certain age and didn't have a husband. I think she's and bullied. so she's... Or something. I think something I got to her where she wasn't fitting in and they were like, you're, you're ridiculous. You don't deserve any of this. Mm, I don't think we see any signs of that. I mean, that would be buckling under the social pressure. I don't, but we don't see anything. Like, if that were the case, I feel like at some of these parties, especially at the Cotillion, we would have seen people acting in that way towards Xenia. How long has she been doing this? Well, if she were bullied and then started acting this way, I think the bullying would have gotten worse, is my point. People would have taken that as a sign of weakness and would have really driven it home. I think I think it is an internalized thing on her part where she just cannot handle the social expectations. And when she perceived that she was failing, she overcompensated trying to turn back the clock and trying to reclaim the opportunities that she thought she could have. And now we're in the situation where she's blind to what should be a great social opportunity with the Earl. Who, who's like, I think is probably a good dude. He's the way the prince just dismisses him automatically. And then from his perspective, he's like, oh, oh he makes me look good. Yeah, he's like, he's the guy who picks up on everything. He remembers everything. He knows everybody. He... He knows what's going on. He's the one who gives me all my information, so I don't have to pay attention. And and he, like, says yeah. or does stupid things, so yeah. he makes him look good. Right. Like, I think the Earl is, is probably a great dude, and he may end up being an ally in the second half of the book. I certainly hope so. And and Xenia is just blind to the fact that he'd be a great match for her. Uh, what was going on? So the prince dismissed himself, right? And then what happened with Xenia and him? And the girl. I think that might be past where I read. That's what I'm asking you. <laughs> <laughs> uh, where I left off, the prince was still in... Valletta had just left. The prince was still in the booth. The steward showed up and was like, the lady passed out. And Iron is like heading out the door. Okay. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but okay, I I want to I want to move on though because we haven't even gotten to Sedlin. The big stuff. We uh, haven't talked about Sedlin and Maria and Will. Oh my gosh. So let's talk about Sedlin first of all. I'm proud of him. I know he succumbed to his obsessions but also i kind of don't blame him he's so close to maria he's so close and he spent all these months trying to get here and he's finally here and he's supposed to leave her alone yeah oof so i want to rewind a little bit even from there okay okay and this maybe ties a bit into writing Maybe not writing style, but but more plotting. Story development. Um, 
the book kicks off with him very early on just crucifying himself over what happened with Maria. And his Blaming other himself. And that came out of nowhere for me. I don't know if this is just because I don't, you know, it's been months since I read Arm of the Sphinx, but I don't have any memory of him agonizing like this, blaming himself in this way. He blamed himself for some things in the first books, but not in this. Like, it felt a, it felt like a very um, self-aware bit of writing on the part of Bancroft, because I, you know, after reading Senlin Ascends, of course, I looked up reviews and and uh, you know, press on the book, and I saw that there was a as much as the book was lauded and rightfully so it was a great book there was a fairly substantial amount of feminist criticism in in the uh framing that like it's problematic that the woman's sexuality is what causes all the problems and then she immediately goes off page and then it's all about the man I saw a lot of that in reviews. And the beginning of this book feels like a self-aware reactionary bit of writing on the part of Bancroft to say, like, no, no, Senlin's a feminist too. He recognizes she's allowed to have her her thing. Like it it kind of came out of left field for me. Like, I do think it's in character for Senlin to have this sort of guilt. But it felt very heavy-handed at the beginning of this book in comparison to what he thought about in the first two books and how he blamed himself in those. Now, I can sort of head-canonize it as, well, he's off of the crumb now. Maybe he's, like, his literal brain chemistry is different. He's got a new perspective on things. Uh, And especially after the kiss with Edith. Where maybe he's more aware of his sexual relationship with Maria and reflecting on that. But but that was like my biggest problem with the book. And I can't even really say it's a problem. It was just something that jarred me at the beginning of it. Really? Yeah. Okay, so the way that I saw it was he's recovering from an addiction. Mm-hmm. And these are some of the steps that you go through in recovery. So I'm going to, I'm going to read. I was kind of curious if this aligned with the 12 steps and it absolutely does. Apparently (laughs) ready, ready, (laughs) make a searching and fearless moral inventory of ourselves. Um, make a list of all the people we have harmed and, Become willing to make amends to them all. Um, let's see what else. Make direct amends to people wherever it's possible. Okay, so I think this is valid, but I wish we had seen, like, this happening instead of just the result of this happening. Like, we don't see him actually make that inventory of the people he's harmed or or ruminating well, on the moral didn't he do a little bit of it in the not, library not while he's detoxing not really i mean but 
if if he did, it wasn't leading directly to this specific thing. That's my point. Is like uh, unless I'm completely misremembering, he didn't consider this aspect of it. He didn't consider the whole like I was being like sexually romantically limiting to her and that to Maria yeah to Maria and that that is why we're in this situation okay okay I'll give you that I'll give you that so like I think it would have been in character for him to consider that sort of a thing I just wanted to see it before we got to a very heavy hand on the narrative in the first couple chapters where he's considering this over and over and over thinking about this is my fault for these reasons. Um, that said, I don't think that's a major criticism. It was just something that popped into my mind because I'm aware of what the critics were saying about the first book. Mm-hmm. And we've already had a conversation on on this podcast looking at these books from a, a feminist literary theory perspective. So it's on my mind. And, you know... It just adds another layer of, of analysis. I think for some readers, having him open the book in this way is probably a, a refreshing thing. I think it's probably a good thing for a lot of people. Uh, it, it was just something that I kind of wish we had had a little more of a foundation for. Again, unless I'm totally blanking on something, because that's also possible. Because it's been like five months since I <laughs> last read uh any books of Babel. But no, I don't I don't think he directly thought of himself that way. I, you're right about that. Hmm. But this like categorizing and listing and repeating of the wrongs that he has done, I think that's part of him trying to recover. Yeah. But that's far from the only thing going on with Senlin in in uh, first part of the book. Well, like I said, I was I was proud of him, Drew. I thought he <sighs> I thought he had some growth, and I was he did. I was pleased with him. I love Thomas Senlin as a main character. He's a great hero. He's a great protagonist. He's I think if you sat him down at a pub right next to me, we'd get along great. He is a nerd. Um, but I was surprised at how much I flip-flopped from... Yeah, you really didn't like him. <laughs> uh, no. <laughs> I, will, I will give him all his faults. He has plenty. But he took some serious steps. And I was a lot more furious with Maria, which surprised me. Oh. <laughs> okay. No, okay. we got to talk Senlin more. We got to talk know, Senlin more. I know, I know, I know, I <laughs> know. So, so like, where, where do you want to, where do you want to start? Because I know where I want to go. Um, let's talk about his persona first. His alias. As this Pen- stuffy... Uh, Cyril, <laughs> Cyril. What was it? Cyril Penrod or Penfield? Wait, wait, wait. can you do the voice, Cyril Figgis? <laughs> no, I cannot. I'm bad at impressions, but that's good. That's good. Uh, <laughs> Cyril Penfield was that his name? 
Yeah. I think it was Penfield. Penfield. Um, first off, I feel bad for him. Like, that was definitely deliberate on the part of the Sphinx. Like, a little a little bit of mutiling. A little bit of torture. But, but hey, it was a good disguise. It was a good disguise. But also, like, I felt so bad for him when he was ordering, like, the warm water. <laughs> everybody the bartender's just like slightly gagging as he's drinking it (laughs) i love i love i love their practice session too where he's like no 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 disgust me yeah yeah. (laughs) don't just he goes into theoretical cannibalism he's like good byron's like good i don't want to talk to you again yeah (laughs) perfect i love the imagination like say what you will about writing style or characters or whatever, but like it, it needs to be said. Josiah Bancroft, amazing job with the imagination in these books. The tower in general is so cool. The, 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 the micro settings are hilarious more often than not. And when they're not, they're haunting. Usually Uh, it's, this is a, an achievement of the mind. <laughs> I also think that this was smart <laughs> on the part of the Sphinx because she knew that he could play this part. Because oh, yeah, he definitely. has in his life before. What is the the ringdom he was supposed to be from? Wasn't it with a B or something? Oh, gee. Well, I... Hmm. Um, I heard it and dismissed it. Yeah. I, like, you're... Oh, you're a Blake. Yeah. A something in... Dang it. <laughs> I'm sure people listening to this are like yelling at their headphones right now because neither of us can remember it. Um, I, I hope we get a scene there with all these people. With some actual people from that ringdom? Yeah. That would be good. No, I want to I go there, Drew. Yeah, yeah, yeah. To that ringdom. Yeah. Yeah. Dang it, come on. And Where also, it's hard for me to imagine because the rest of the tower is excessive in every way. Yeah, and they're like the ascetics. Like, These are the people who keep the books and who keep things running. Pinfield, is... yeah, Pinfield. Um, how okay, so this how is this ringdom working? That doesn't fit with the rest of the tower. Are they just keeping keeping the lights on for everybody else? So they, they can do their stuff. Boscop. Stupid... He's a Boscop. Boscop. Yeah. How's, Boscop it, how's it spelled? B O S K O P. E A? Boscopea? E I A. E I A? Yeah. Of course. Like onomatopoeia. Yeah. He's like, may I have a cup of warm water, please? Warm water. The bartender looked to the Duke, who seemed just as surprised. <laughs> Someone pretended not to notice their confusion, and the bartender recovered his professional air. One cup of warm water coming up. <laughs> so he withdrew and opened his billfold. <laughs> like he's going to pay for it. The Duke waved off the offer. Please, you are my guest. And I think I can afford a cup of warm water. <laughs> and then they go down. <laughs> Tongue temperature. Perfect. The Duke's smile was beginning to lose its luster. <laughs> he goes, your office is here in Pelfia. No, in Boscapea. The Duke slapped the polish bar and belted out a laugh. Oh, you're a Boscop. That explains it. <laughs> 
what was what was his other story about his socks? He he had wet socks. Uh, a hole in his sock. Oh, a hole. That's yeah. right. Yeah, and he loses his mind about it. It's just wet socks to me because I deal with it regularly, and it sucks. <laughs> it oh sucks. My gosh. Oh my gosh. <laughs> but yeah, I was grateful, like on behalf of Tom, that by the end of his time in Pelphia. He got to have like a couple of rums and a in a glass of champagne he at caved. least. He caved. Yeah. And well, the the final day, he's just like, screw it. Like, I cannot deal with this. Yeah, he, he's just like, I'm going to the bar. I'm ordering whatever the hell I want. Rum. He yeah, he rum. orders rum. Uh. <laughs> Which was interesting. Mm. Why why are multiple characters he's drinking a rum? Pirate. Mm. I don't think that's why, but okay. He pretended to be a pirate. No, he was a pirate. He attempted. He was pretty successful at it. Just saying. Just saying. Okay, okay, okay. But but where you were going earlier is kind of the, the heart of Thomas Semlin. This scene where he finally gets to talk to Maria. Oh my gosh. So when... Uh, like I said earlier, you know, it was, you were asleep. I was an insomniac and reading. And I got to the end of that chapter where they're, they like go underground on the roller coaster and they stop and she turns to him and she's like, what are you doing here, Tom? And I, I like pumped my fist. I was like, oh yeah. Like, you, you know what I was, I know and, where I was when that scene <laughs> happened too, because it was so distinct. <laughs> I can. I was walking that trail, and I could show you exactly, exactly where I stopped <laughs> when that when she said that. Yeah, I was like, oh, I can't. I, I need to not be too loud. I don't want to wake up Lauren. That's <laughs> fine. I mean, I and I didn't have any water, but I would have choked. Yeah, I've been drinking <laughs> water. But I, I mean, I knew that she knew. Honestly, Drew. See, I didn't. I really She's, didn't. She is so stinking sharp. She is. That is true. That's why she I was a thought, pain in the butt as a student. I thought, like, sure, the, like she wouldn't be distracted by the costume, but I thought the like the nearly full face mask, where like all you could see was like the bottom part of his jaw. Nah. I thought that would be enough, and his then voice. It, and then it would be something that he said on the roller coaster that would reveal it. Disguise yourself however you want. If you talk to me, Drew, I lost <laughs> you for twelve months, and you talk to me, I would know you. Oh my gosh. Okay. I don't even want to think about that. How could I not? How could I not know somebody that I've been in love with? Like, but we've had a much longer, more sustained relationship than they did. I don't know. How long was she a student? Hmm? In fact, like, pretend it's not you. Pretend it's somebody else that I just know. I would know. I would know their voice. <laughs> I don't know if I would. I know I would. In fact, all the time I hear, like, I'll hear somebody from over there and I'll be like, oh, so if he's here. affecting an accent? Doesn't matter. I know your voice. <laughs> Doesn't matter. Okay. Okay. Um, but anyway, this scene was just an almighty gut punch. Oh. <sighs> Because you know when she's talking about it, you know, it's from his perspective and he's interpreting her words as she actually loves Wilhelm. He is totally coloring everything she says at this time. At this time. But we know she has the baby. Yeah. 
And I, I am glad, uh, slightly off topic, I am glad we got a, a breakdown of how it all happened from Will. Because we debated this at the end of the last book about, like, what was going on with the baby. Yeah, what was she and thinking? And we get an explanation for how the timeline worked, how the relationship between her and the Duke worked. Because I was, I was kind of iffy on that, where I was like, I don't know if he would have gone for her if he knew he was, if he knew she was pregnant. But now we see the type of person he was. He's like, oh, this is a lever. I can use this to control her. Mm. Uh, but even then, he didn't know she was pregnant right away. And and he even said, it, if he had known, then his inclination would have been, you know, dump her to the curb. Yeah. So, but, but yeah, so Tom interprets it in this way, but we know this is a great example of dramatic irony where we know reading the scene that she's talking about their child. And you brought up a point that I didn't even consider. Like I was, I was annoyed with Maria for the scene. And then I felt a little, like, or, or, or she was a little exonerated once we get the full circumstances with Will. But then you brought up something. I was furious. Yeah, you were. Furious. How dare she not tell him yeah. that he is a father that is not yours to keep from him. Mm-hmm. completely unacceptable. You you do not get to decide that he doesn't get to know. Yeah. Yeah, it was... That is, he, he is supposed to be there for this child. And at the same time, she knows that Will won't. Yeah, that's, that's for dang sure. So she's, what, gonna decide to deprive him or, or her baby of of their father? Yep. No. No. You are not justified in any way in this choice. Yeah. I'm, I'm really excited to get another scene with Maria and see where things go from here with her. Because there are a lot of different ways you this can what? play out. Yeah. You know what I was really excited for? I feel like Valletta could reach her. Yeah, I mean, Voletta had a point when she talked about her experience with Rodion. Yes. She, she's like, I understand what this kind of a situation is like. And she doesn't even know what Maria's situation is like. She is making an assumption. She is. But as it turns out, she does know. <laughs> but she she has good insights here mm-hmm. where she's like, I've seen what this is like. I've seen what this ringdom values and how it, how these people act. Yeah. And I'm going to give her a chance in a different way than Thomas would. She's like, right. I know what she said, but what what is she What does she feel? What does she What does she want? Yeah. yeah. She's like, she deserves to choose because I got to choose. That's why I gave her the title of like not a child. <laughs> because she she is thinking on this level. That's fair. And I think that she can reach Maria. With this. We'll see. <laughs> yeah. If she gets a chance. I mean, also, how old is this baby? What, m- month? Two? Yeah. Three? So so there, it's been less than a year, 
right? It's like July right now. And it was, she had the baby in December. So seven months. She went, she went missing in December with the mysterious illness. Okay. I think it's a... Uh, so people show at different times, so I don't know... At oldest, seven months. Okay. Yeah. Okay. She may have had the baby later, but she just began showing enough that he, like, sequestered her. Or she didn't show at all. Well, he wouldn't have sequestered her if she wasn't showing, but... Yeah. Hmm. Yeah. So Maria, she's got some work to do in, um, in the second On herself? Yeah, yeah, for sure. Yes. There's... Mm. I, I know she's had some trauma, but it's like... she's She's got to think about her daughter in a different way. She's got to think about her husband in a different way. Which one? You know which one I'm talking yeah, about. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well... Like you I, said, it's unfair to him that she didn't com- tell him that. It is completely like, unacceptable. Yeah. You don't, you don't get to decide... Yeah. I mean, she could have probably decided in the tower not to have the baby. I'm sure they know. And look, I I get that she was caught off guard by his appearance. She thought that he left. But still. She mischaracterized him. Yeah. That's cruel, too. And, I mean, also, also in her defense, he has changed an awful lot. That's true. I'm proud of him now, and I hated him. You did hate him. <laughs> I liked him from the start. I, I felt like he was a good guy who was um, a little square around the edges. <laughs> <laughs> and he's sanded You're off saying... those corners now. And he's become a little more flexible and a little more square understandable. Square around the edges. Yeah. Huh? Yeah. I'm, I'm mixing metaphors here. Okay. All right. Yeah. <laughs> You know, like you call somebody a square, or they're like the awkward outsider. Yeah, therefore they would have lots of edges, and if they weren't a square, they wouldn't have edges. You can have all kinds of different shaped edges. You shouldn't have edges if you're fitting in. (laughs) What are you talking about? Puzzle pieces have edges. Yes. And they fit together. Yes, but the metaphor is wrong. You're wrong. (laughs) No. A square is not, doesn't fit. They're not. What are, what are you even talking about? People don't call you a square if you fit in. Therefore, you're not, you're not. Yes, a, that's my point. You don't have edges. What? <laughs> Everybody has edges. <laughs> okay, okay, moving on. Moving on. Anyway. <laughs> Thomas Semlin has grown a great deal and... I've liked him the whole way. I'm glad you like him a lot more now. Proud of him. That, but we haven't talked about the trail. We haven't talked about that's, John. That's why I'm proud of him. Is the journey he goes on mentally in the trail. That contraption, <laughs> that helmet. Yeah. Is so horrific. Yeah. You want to watch Man in the Iron Mask with me? Ooh. Because that's read what the I book. was. I we read should the read book. the book yeah. and then watch the movie. And it's actually like a legitimate failing of mine that I haven't read it since Three Musketeers is one of my favorite books of all time. I've never read it, but I did watch the movie on accident <laughs> randomly one time. Uh, also, it's um, it's what's his butt. 
from Titanic. Um, Leonardo DiCaprio? Yeah. Really? Yeah. Oh, okay. He he plays both <laughs> both of them. Oh, interesting. Uh-huh. Oh, that's cool. Um, Except he yeah, has eye can, holes. You can tell. Well, that's a substantial difference, though. And this we'll is where I was he going. Doesn't. We'll pretend yeah, he doesn't. This is where I was going with the <laughs> the thing with Senlin is not only is it the perpetual darkness of it, you know, the, to the point that he's hallucinating, and and I fully understand. Uh, by yeah. the way, so I have been in complete darkness because I've been caving. And no, you don't say spelunking; you say caving. Anyways, you do see things. Oh yeah, I know. Yeah, like this is a real phenomenon. Oh yeah. But the thing that got me, and and this is not at all the most horrible part of his situation, but for some reason the detail that stood out to me, there were a couple of points where Bancroft describes the weight on his neck. Mm. And and every time it popped up, I could just feel my neck cramping at the idea of this immovable weight that it would pull my head down. It would, I don't know why this one detail impacted me this way, but it was horrifying to me to think about. It was more the smothering to me. Yeah. I I knew reading it. I thought about you. I was like, Lauren would, Lauren would lose her mind so fast with this. Mm. Um, it's, I mean, we've talked about it before, even even just the idea of losing a sense or losing a limb or something where the, it is abhorrent to you. Yeah. Yeah. So, but, but he, despite that, despite this awful situation he's in, we've seen how much Senlin has turned outward how much he has come to regard the people around him. And he spends most of the time and he finds his refuge in his sanity in caring for and worrying about John and finding a solution uh, there. Not just him, and, but he he's now a father and he says, yes. I will not be defeated by this. Mm-hmm. I have somebody else to live for. And that's the long-term thing, but the immediate thing is John. Sure. sure and he's sure. the one who makes the decision we have to go to the zealots. We have to deal with Luke Mara. And he also, he just, he decides to be strong. He decides to, I have to, I have to do what I have to do because it's not about uh-huh. me anymore. And I loved, okay. It's like, I am not a rule breaker just by my personality. It, it is bedrock Drew McCaffrey. Well, neither one of us are. Like I, I don't, I'm not comfortable breaking rules. I, I'm I'm not comfortable being transgressive. I'm not comfortable being illegal or a rebel or whatever. But oh, it was so satisfying reading about him thinking, I will make any promise. I will make any oath. It doesn't matter. I'm not going to keep it. He's like, I don't care what they make me say. To get this thing off. I will say it. I'll say it. I'm not going to keep it. I have my goal. I'm going to stick to that. And so it's like, 
on a certain level, he's being transgressive there. He's being a liar. Yeah. And he wouldn't do that before. He he definitely wouldn't have. Uh, the, the Thomas Senlin who entered into, you know, the parlor. His word was so important. And we see yeah. that reflected in, in him thinking about what he talked to his students about. Yep. Yeah. And, and him having this conscious realization was a pretty awesome moment. It was a great moment. Yeah. I'm really proud of him. Yeah. Like, it, and I've read characters before who treat oaths this way, where they're like, yeah, I'll say whatever. I mean, Cain comes to mind. But it but means so a, much more yeah, here. Exactly. There's, it's meaningless right. to them, to those characters. Right. Here it actually means something that he is rejecting its meaning. So. So many great, times. Great work by Bancroft. Great character development. So many times he could have had an easier way, an easier path, if he had just been willing to sacrifice mm-hmm. his word or his morals or whatever it was. And he refused a couple of times. Yep. I mean, yes, yeah, yes, he, he went astray. He really did. But he... When it was conscious, he refused. Yep. And I liked how not only did Bancroft use the scene with Maria on the roller coaster as a, a an inflection point for conflict. But he repeated it later? No, it, it's he used that scene also as a sort of check-in, a, a progress report. The way he describes Maria looking over his face and he knows that she's seeing like the grizzled beard and the scars and the sunken cheeks. And, and you're like, yeah, Senlin has changed a lot and it's not just internal. It is external. It's easy to forget. He cares, carries literal scars. His face was torn up in a fight. You know, and she is seeing this. This man sitting next to her is no longer the awkward, genteel school teacher. This is a hardened man who has been cast into the most chaotic setting of humanity imaginable and has surprised everybody and come through it. And I think, I think she, that's awesome. I think she underestimated him. Oh, she that, definitely did. She definitely did. Yeah. But you're right. That was really, really good writing. Yeah. But also, um, later on, I want to bring up how he went back to that scene for us. And he dissected it with Senlin. Oh, yeah. In the yeah. mask where he was like, she was speaking to me in code and I totally and I missed, missed it. it. I missed all of it. She was telling me something. And but I didn't he was get it. he was so he was so caught off guard. He was so panicked, you know. He was focused on the wrong things, and of course, he blames himself. I don't think it's necessarily his fault that he wasn't in the right mindset to pick up on code. Mm, yeah, not not necessarily. Like, I, I I think that scene was a just a tragedy of two people being caught off guard, and. Both of them missing the important aspects of what was happening. Yeah. Yeah. So. 
do we have any other characters we want to touch on before we, you know, just talk about any remaining miscellaneous uh, points or Do we say everything about Xenia? I don't I, I don't have any Whatever. more. Um, She's awful. <laughs> I think she has potential to be redeemed, but the Marquis de Clark is awful. She has to choose. I I expect the Marquis will have something surprising. He was such a fop. But yeah, it was, he's it such was, a friggin' idiot. But it was over the top, so I wonder if there's some depth hidden. Yeah, yeah, that there there might be a hidden layer. Xenia too, I think. Oh, I don't know. I think she can grow, and Anne told us she. Oh, wish. she can grow. I don't think there's like a deliberate facade going on there. I think she really is like acting like this out of, you know, what we talked about earlier—a yeah, yeah. a reactionary thing. Um. Uh, Edith. We haven't talked about Edith. Well, she hasn't done anything she on She really scene. hasn't, but... Oh, things have been teased. <coughs> we don't know what Tom said in that letter. We have certainly been given the impression that he Wait, just didn't like... We, didn't we get a little bit of it? We, a very Oleta? little bit. Of, yeah, she walks in on Edith yeah, listening to yeah. it. But it cuts off. And it cuts off at a very specific point where he says, I love. And then it cuts off. And the impression we're given is he's saying, I love you. He's he's pouring out his heart to her. He's Ugh. turning everything over to Edith. I'm so disappointed in I, him. I don't at that moment. I don't know if that's actually what happened. I think You think it's I think Bancroft is withholding the rest of that message because it's not what we think it is. Ooh, I would like that. Because it it hurt me um to see him abandon Maria and his marriage so easily. I mean, it's... I don't see it as him abandoning his marriage. I see it as she's already burned my marriage to the ground. He stopped fighting. Yeah, because he he had built himself up to this one moment. He's like, this is it. And then he lost. And that broke him. But I don't know how much it broke him. I I don't think he was totally broken there. Oh, definitely not. Like, I I really, really think, independent of, you know, the revelation about the child and I what her situation really is, I think that message to Edith doesn't say what Bancroft is implying. trying to, to make us think. Okay, so I, I know he was upset. I know he was in an emotional state. I know he didn't make the best decisions there. And also, isn't that he was drinking at that point? Oh, yeah, he was real drunk. He, he drank a lot at the party. Yeah, yeah, but... So, like, the way it cuts off with I love, we all think it's I love you. It's him pouring out his heart to Edith. It may say I love you, but there might be a but. Or it may not say I love you. Well, I'm trying to recall what exactly it was from his point of view. Before, so what we hear in the message is something like, I appreciate how like open you are and how I can relax around you. From his perspective? Yeah. No, yeah. no, no, no. Not from Valetta's. When he sends the message. Oh, he, he just says, dear Edith. That's all we get from him. Huh. Okay. I forgot that. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, Bancroft is teasing. I mean, he's he's really uh, keeping that 
message under wraps through the first half of the book? I just don't like it for Thomas or Edith, and I really no, I don't either. I obviously I'm kind of <laughs> I'm kind of partial to marriages staying together. Imagine that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, um, Byron. Huh. So sweet. I felt so bad. He's like, I shouldn't exist. I'm awful. I'm a failure. And Byron's Vol- awesome. And Voletta has another moment there. Yeah. You I, see I what did, I mean? But, okay, so that is also, like, the kind of... Her reaction to him is still the kind of thing I could see a child to a parent. Or, or to a surrogate parent. Not a child. A young woman, sure. But it was a very heartfelt moment. Is she past that. the age of reason, Drew? <laughs> Yes. I'm not saying she's physically a child. I'm saying she has a lot of childlike attributes. Sure, sure. She likes fun. She doesn't want to be bored. Yeah, she's I get that. She's impulsive and irrational and hasty and... Yeah, it's fun. <laughs> fun. Drew. Uh, I love you. <laughs> uh. But yeah, but I did feel for Byron. And yeah, we got Byron's his backstory great. for the first time. Yeah. Oh, poor guy. And and he works so poor hard. Deer. <laughs> he works so hard. <laughs> yeah. To try By- and help her. I want a deer butler. Byron's awesome. <laughs> yeah, and he what was the Lady Grey's book that was our oh, other epigraphs. Yeah, <laughs> that he was clearly going off of. Yeah. To help Valetta. <laughs> <laughs> when he was like ringing the bell to make iron drop, <laughs> that whole scene was hilarious. Wait, wait. When he kept like ringing the bell to shock iron and make her drop the tea saucers, <laughs> and then he like sets off all the cannons to make them understand how loud a party can be. <laughs> and Edith comes down, and they're just in this state of chaos, and she's like, <laughs> "What the heck." <laughs> Great. great. I love how we reflect on that as Valetta's being asked to dance and she's like, oh, no, I don't do that. Uh, <laughs> Byron Byron finally caved on this one point. Yeah, he's like, he you will not dance. Just don't dance. <laughs> he wouldn't cave on the cutlery. No. But I also like their social commentary there where he's like, yes, this is ridiculous. Yes, there are many, many steps. And here is why. Yeah, it's all about... It's not for any reason other than to exclude those you want to exclude and, and you know, make yes. yourself feel good and, and special and privileged and, and etc. Yes, and to signify that you are one of the... Yeah. Yep. Whatever, the special class. Yep. I definitely had some time in listening to that chapter being like, and what do we do today? And what are the special things that I was taught? That you come from a good family, therefore I mean, you do this, and you well, like, like, don't I, do that. I did cotillion for three years, so like I, I mean, I don't remember all the silverware like when you place say three setting. years. Tell me, like, was it weekly? Was it? Yeah, it was every week from January to like early May. At the country club, and you learn table manners and dancing and 
like high high society socializing how to approach a woman at a party and ask her to dance wait tell me a little bit of it I what know, what you were taught because i didn't take formal classes this was like family i don't know like it, it, there were it was just like a very <coughs> a very structured thing it was it was very much there are certain formulas to what you say there are certain formulas to, to yeah. Like to, what? I don't remember. I was, this was from when I was 10 to 12. Okay, what about table settings? I mean. Do you remember those? Some of them. <laughs> this is something I've literally never had to use in my life outside oh, of going on. to Cotillion. I mean, there are things like uh, having the various kinds of forks you have in, you know, like a, an oyster fork and a salad fork and a steak fork and a dessert fork. And you have, um, I don't know, multiple plates. You have a salad plate and a dessert plate. You have a water glass and a wine glass. You have all the forks were on the left side. Uh, Except for dessert utensils were at the top of the plate. I don't like. I See, don't that's know. something. That's I, something. <laughs> most of what I remember, honestly, is like the dancing things. Like they would line all the guys up on one side of the room and all the girls on the other, and you would, and then they would like let you loose, so to speak. And they started us off where like whoever you were lined up across from was who you go and you ask. And there was like, you know, the, the formula, you know, may I have this dance and uh, you know, whatever. And then as we got older and we knew the basics, then you could go ask whomever. Um, and that was usually like at the end, like, there would be like the final session was a, it wasn't a lesson. It was um, for so there were two age groups. There was the ten to twelve, and there was the thirteen to fifteen. And I didn't do it from thirteen to fifteen. Uh, but why not hockey? I don't even remember honestly. I don't remember. I enjoyed cotillion; like it was fun. It wasn't my favorite thing in the world, but it was fun. But so the the end thing would be for the younger age group. The last session was. Um, the open dance where you could ask whomever and you generally speaking, you danced with the same person for the whole night and you oh. could use any, you know, they would play different styles of music and you were supposed to know which dance, you know, this song, you dance the jitterbug, this one, you do a foxtrot. This is a waltz. This is, you know, whatever. And, uh, and then the older age group was a full dinner. Oh, formal dinner. And you sat at a table with your date and you would like choose your date the previous session. And then you sat at dinner and you had to know your settings. You had to know which utensils to use. And it was like a seven course dinner and oh. then a dance afterward, a formal dance afterward. It was a whole thing. So I never did that. That's That seems like good practice for dating. Yeah. At, but, at least, like... I mean, it, it did help, like, giving me at least a little bit of confidence in terms of, like, romantic relations. But I was still... Keep in mind, this is when I was 10 to 12. I was painfully shy. 
until yeah. I was like, well, that pushed 18. you then it did push me and it helped. But, but yeah, so like going through these chapters with Voletta, I was like, yeah, no, I get this. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. Welcome back to Inking Out Loud, everybody. We're, we're going off on like way more tangents than normal. It's been, like I said, it's been months and months. Uh, it may not be the same wonderfully structured show <laughs> as it was, um, at least for a little while before we get back into the swing of things. But uh, hopefully you're having fun with, with us because we're having fun with this book. I, I'm i so glad we we started back in with this. I think eventually a we'll go spot. back to the spear cuts through water, but like I'm not ready for that kind of... I enjoyed it. Textual analysis and and everything. I wanted to do something that I would enjoy because that was why I put Inking Out Loud on hiatus. Yeah. I wasn't enjoying it anymore. It was just anxiety for me. And reading this book has been an unbelievable blast. I'm excited to finish it. Yeah, I am too. So let's talk uh, any miscellaneous points. Um, I feel like I forgot something. I mentioned last night, I'm excited to see what the Will of the Wisps are. Uh, I know that's a, a Chekhov's gun that's going to play into things. Uh, oh, these, the cleaners? The, the the things that come up from the street and the people all rush. And we get a little bit of an explanation when they're going to Maria's uh, performance where Xenia is like, oh, it's supposed to show you like your fantasies or whatever. But when I did it, it was awful. And I saw, like, an old woman. Oh, and, yeah. And I'm like, okay, well, that sure sounds like Xenia saw her future. Uh, that yeah. she's going to die old and alone. Yeah, like, <laughs> yeah, yeah. I think it traumatized her. And she was like, I can't have that. Therefore, I need to change my whole life and who yeah. I am. Yeah. Hmm. <laughs> yeah, I forgot about that. And they yeah. pop up randomly. and Yeah, and people, like, lose their minds over it. Uh, let's see other miscellaneous points. We haven't heard anything from Adam since he got apprehended at the top of the tower. Do you think we see him this book or next book? I think we see him at the end of this book. Okay. And that sets up, I think whatever happens, we're going to get a conclusion with Maria in this book. Okay. What do you see with, um, what's about to happen? What's about to happen? Um... I don't think Voletta's going to get to see Maria for a little while. I think that's going to get delayed. Uh, we have to deal with the prince first. And Maria and Will get delayed. And while Voletta and Iron are dealing with the prince, John and Senlin have to deal with Luke Marat. Yeah, yeah, for sure. They will escape from Luke Marat, but not totally finish off the okay, pod storyline. No, I, I think that... Uh... I think he somehow overtakes Luke Mara. And becomes the Hod King. So that is also something I've had like in my mind. Yep. Um, I mean, I thought it was going to be John. Not, not like I thought we were going to run into the Hod King and it was going to already be John. John. Oh, oh, but now I'm kind of like, no, Thomas has the drive right now and John is hurt. And, I think there's still going to be conflict with the Hods. Of course there is. Um, but I think he he comes out on top. It may be like a deposition or he escapes. I don't think Luke is gone after the end of this book. But I do think they're going to deal with both the Prince and Will. You in think this so? Book. Yeah. And 
maybe, maybe Will survives, but they get Mario away. Okay, who's the next big bad then? The top of the tower. Okay. We gotta like deal with order. We gotta deal is? with the Sphinx and whatever's going on there. We have to open the vault. We have to figure out what's going on at the top of the okay. tower. And I think that's what the final book is gonna next. be about. Next, we had a hint here. Um, why are all her spies being destroyed here in Pelphia? The birds. Is it just the birds? It's, Who's directing it, no, the birds? No, no, no. It's it's a, an accident. It's a pure accident. It's only you think in, it's an accident? It is only in the Colosseum that the birds were going silent. The, the moths were going silent. And they're like, oh, something's going on there. And then we find out there was this game where they the kids made the birds attracted to shiny things. And he tries to send the message. And it gets immediately taken out by a magpie. And they shred the wings and take the shiny cylinder up to their nest. We also had a couple characters who were suspicious of them in the first place, of the moths. So I wonder how much they know. I, I, okay, and what what is with this uh, Wakeman? Georgina. Is that actually her name? I think her last name began with an H. Something like that. Yeah, what's with her? Whose side is she on? She's interesting. I think she's on on the Pels. Why? She doesn't seem all that interested. She's kind of nice. Georgine Haste. Um, I I think she's just like. I Wouldn't mean, we've they... already seen examples of with with Edith uh, Wakeman who are uh, disgruntled or maybe what, what's the word um, bitter toward the Sphinx. Okay. She hasn't given any, any indication of that. And when they arrive, she is more than warm. Uh, but when she's dealing with Senlin, when they're going to arrest him, she is not. Yeah, but he's, she's not, he's not directly from the Sphinx as far as she knows. No. But Edith and everybody else. But I think she realized he are. was. I think she realized he was when she saw the cigar box. Hmm, that's possible, yeah. I don't know. I think she's going to be a, a an <laughs> opponent for Edith. I, I'm i hopeful that she's not. That she's an ally. Hmm. A secret ally. It'd be great. She doesn't It'd seem, be good. She doesn't seem taken with Pelvia. Remember? Because she talks about it. She's like, the, I played the part. The other option <laughs> is that he is setting up the red hand as a misdirect where you're like, oh, the red hand has changed. He's tame now. Uh, and then he turns out not to be. And we get Georgine and Edith taking on the red hand together. No, I don't see that. I don't see it. Uh, I don't, I don't buy that the red hand is tamed, but I'm not sure which direction he's going to explode. You know, mm. yeah. I can't tell you predictions on yeah, I think we see, Valletta. so the way he has set up the book so far is like the final scene sets up the conflict for the next book, where, you know, Arm of the Sphinx, the final scene was Maria and the baby and Will. What's the next conflict? Adam and the top of the tower. We're going to get an Adam scene in the epilogue. So far off. I don't even... And, and the final book, my guess is that it, it wraps together the Sphinx, the Vault, the Top of the Tower, and the Hods. Okay. I feel like Pelphia is too petty. That this conflict 
that's been brewing in the background transcends any one ringdom. Hmm. You know, the, the paintings and the vault is too big a deal. I guess we didn't see a whole lot from the influence of the pills in the other ringdoms. We saw we saw it in the baths. Yeah, we saw it in the baths and a bit in New Babel. Yeah, but but that those are like the immediate ringdoms, and then in this one we're really seeing oh they're one of many ringdoms that kind of have similar influence and and like call themselves kings and dukes. And yeah, then... yeah. Hmm. So, um, okay, I'm I'm really itching for you to, f- to read tonight then. Oh, yeah, I'm definitely going to read tonight. But before we wrap up, before we wrap up, we have to do the final draft. (laughs) Okay, so we walked through and we spent some time looking through all the glass doors and all the beers and being like, well, this would work, but, you know. This might be okay. Why isn't there a leaving lady? What about a mermaid beer? Yeah, I was looking for, like, ballast point beers because they all have these, like, nautical-themed things. But they're all either like pirates or fish. I was really open for a mermaid beer. Um, I mean, there are beers with a mermaid on them, but yeah, they aren't yeah. called. Yeah, there's no mermaid or leaping lady, and and we were going through, and then we stumble over Verboten Brewing Company, a local favorite. They're right here in Loveland, Colorado, and this um, is a regular. They make this all the time. Yeah, I think we. I've definitely had Verboten on before um, their barrel-aged barley wine, Grow Old With You, which yeah, is, yeah, yeah. Uh, if you're a barley wine fan, it's a joy. Try to get your hands on this uh, gold medal winner at Festival Barrel-Aged Beers for like three of the last four years, I think. Like they, they've medaled every year for the last five. Really? Like they're, it, it's one of the best barley wines. We, we did a blind tasting. Period. It was still top. Yeah. I mean, it wasn't the top. It was still like. Uh, I believe it took second or third out of eight. For us? Yeah. 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 It was, and we had like a, a banger of a, a barley wine list for that blind tasting. Yeah. It was like, and and price per can even. Uh, yeah, it took third. The one, the one that took second was a $100 bottle for a 12-ounce bottle. Uh. The, and and then it was the cognac rolled with you, which was like what six dollars for a twelve ounce can. Oh man, you know, <laughs> yeah. And we all independently, it was three yeah of us. yeah it was three of us, and we all had it top three. So it, amazing. Anyway, Verboten Brewing Company, Love in Colorado. That means forbidden. They're amazing. Um, and yeah, somehow neither of us immediately went to this beer. <laughs> Like, local favorite. This beer's been around for forever. It's yeah. one of their staples. Yeah. And so this is a wheat beer with honey and orange. Okay, so it's um, a wit. A wheat beer. It doesn't say wit. It's yeah. not a Belgian Well, it's wit. the same. But, like, the honey and orange. No, see, okay. We're going to have a beer talk for a second. When I hear wit beer, I think Belgian. Sure. Like, wit means white. In, yes. Yeah. Yes, it is a Belgian Right. Style as we know it. But wheat beer, I think of as an American wheat beer. And it doesn't have those Belgian esters from like the, the Belgian yeast and, and the estery flavors. This does not. 
Right. This feels like an American wheat. But the orange peel is... Orange peel and coriander are typically flavors you get from the Belgian style. Uh, one version of it. So the version that we have across the U.S. is influenced by the Hoogarden, the Hoogarden version of yeah. the wit. But there are other wits. Just so you know, I looked into this. There are other versions and there are other... I don't know if I've ever had a Hoogarden, honestly. Well, you can have the mass-produced version now, and I, I can you, grab you some. And you went really hard into Cellus. Yes. So Pierre Cellus is... He started um, or saved, depending on your viewpoint, the Who Garden Brewery, mm-hmm. right? And then it burned down. Yeah. <laughs> and then it got bought out by InBev at the time, InBev. Which is Budweiser. Uh, it was not at the time. It was... But now it is. Now it is. Yeah. Budweiser InBev is like the monopoly well it's it's ab InBev, and then it added anheuser-busch InBev. yeah uh but it added another title by the way since then oh 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 oh. um because another merger that's right i forgot about that anyway yeah anyways um it was bought by them but it was started by pierre salas who was continuing a local tradition that was dying out and uh, he relocated to Austin, Texas, and restarted and call it, called it Cellus Brewing. Mm-hmm. They could not expand fast enough. They sold the rights again. Um, and his daughter went back and found whoever had then taken the rights and restarted the brewery. They're back up. Right. Sorry. But that's... Yeah, there's there's a whole crazy history of wheat beers. The honey orange is in reference to a Belgian wit. But you're right. This, this yeast is it not... It doesn't have the esters that I expect from a Belgian beer. Yes. This yeast is not the same strain. Yeah. And, and um, I will... And that's good for me. We can go talk to them. And I'm kind of curious, actually... <laughs> Yeah, but so I, I'm you know, I'm drinking this right now and really think about it and man, like the orange peel and honey are very present. It's got that nice um almost uh like it's 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 a clear beer, sort of clear. Five point two percent. Five point two percent. It's it's not like a really cloudy sedimentary beer like you would get with a Hefeweizen. And it shouldn't be. But it does have a little bit of that texture to it. Um, I like this a lot. Like, it's not as, like, clear and crisp and clean as a sunshine wheat from New Belgium, for instance. That's very American. This is more like a Easy Street from Odell. Mm. But this has more flavor. Like, when I think of an Easy Street, honestly, I think of it with a lemon. And this is very orange. Very orange. Um, you want to say the name of it? Which is appropriate. So, if you're listening to us talking about this and you've read The Hod King, you know what the style of clothing is in Pelphia. This beer now. is called Thinking of Something Orange. <laughs> and apparently neither Lauren nor I was thinking of something orange when we were looking for beers. 
And it wasn't until we saw it, we were like, oh my gosh. And the light bulb went on. Everyone's wearing shades of orange. Yeah. Until they don't know what to do with themselves. Until Valletta hits them Valletta like, a, hits. <laughs> like a lightning bolt out of clear sky. <laughs> Is that what you call it? They're jumping from rooftop to rooftop? I think it was more her appearance at the cotillion. <laughs> in the in the like silver dress. Ooh. That okay. was what broke the fashion. It did break it. You're right. Yeah. It did. Because everybody cut their hair and like started yeah. <laughs> trying to Yeah, the next morning like half the women in the city had cut their hair and nobody was wearing orange anymore and it was just chaos. <laughs> uh, delightful. Um but we are an hour and 45 or so minutes in, Oops. so we should wrap this thing up. This has been, I'm pretty sure this is going to be episode 204 of the Inking Out Loud podcast. Um, man. It's crazy to be back. Yeah, please excuse our extra conversations. Yeah, it's it's been a, a little bit of a celebration returning to the show yeah i mean i i'll freely admit before i hit record tonight like i was i was nervous i haven't been been, so long i hadn't been nervous about recording an episode since you know maybe our first two or three episodes but it was it was different getting back in front of the mic and kicking this thing off again so thank you for listening this deep in if you are not a patreon supporter please consider uh, subscribing. We've got lots of fun content on there. We have bonus episodes. We have lots of original fiction written by myself, as well as Rob Santos, um, my erstwhile co-host. He will will be returning to the show at some point um, when he's uh, got time away from, you know, fixing really awesome fighter jets and airplanes and things. Well, at some point he has to get his own room. <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah, we've, we've got some fun stuff there. You can get uh, exclusive access to, you know, our, our discord server and, you know, special channels there as well as uh, monthly hangouts and things like that. Uh, so check that out. We appreciate all of your support. We appreciate everybody who stuck with us over the long break Thank you for the understanding, and we're excited to be back. I've been your host, Drew McCaffrey, and with me is my special guest, Lauren McCaffrey. Cheers, guys. Thanks for listening, and we'll catch you next time.